Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started. I know there's still folks coming in. Just make yourself comfortable. We are continuing our study of the book of Revelation. And before we jump into the text for this lesson, I thought we would do a very brief review because I know we have uh, more people that are joining us because of the timing of our lessons that are joining us for the first time. We videotape these lessons. They're online on the Crossings website. So if you missed the introduction in our last lesson, you can see it, view it online if you'd like. But I'd like to go over just a few minutes to catch us up on a couple of key ideas. First of all, housekeeping, text your questions during the lesson to that number. I think it's also on your handout. And then let me just jump in uh, after I say a prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together as a body to study your word. Pray that you'd open our hearts to insights on how we might better live out the faith. Father, I thank you for this book in particular that speaks to every generation of Christians because every generation has had trials. And I pray, Father, that you would give us guidance through this. In Christ's name, amen. Review. First of all, when and by whom is this book written? What is the context? We talked about a little timeline of the first century A.D., Uh, Skipping a lot of the uh, various opinions, we're going to talk about this being written by the Apostle John in about 95 AD, likely during the reign of the Emperor Domitian, when persecution of the Christians by the Jews, but particularly now by the Romans, was coming to the fore. And so the setting of this is going to be a time of persecution of Christians, not equally everywhere, But the area to which this letter is written was particularly bad. It was sort of the tip of the spear for Christians to begin experiencing persecution that would get worse as time went on. John writes this book. It's actually a very long letter. But this book of Revelation, these visions that are revealed to him, and as we go through it, I think it's sometimes helpful just to see a very rough outline of this book. The chapter numbers were put in much later They're there just to help us understand the text. But if you can imagine it just being one long letter as it was originally written. We did an introduction in our last lesson. We're going to dive into the first three chapters, the text itself, that are the letters to the seven churches. And then from chapters 4 through 19 are a long series, beautifully done. And I'll talk to you about the structure of that when we get into it in our next lesson. But they're just unbelievable apocalyptic visions, visions that are very symbolic, but visions that have huge ideas behind them. Chapter 20 is that thousand years. Uh, There's so much disagreement about that. When we get to that, I'll give you some choices on which options you can have on viewing the thousand years and the last judgment. And then the book ends with two chapters on the new heaven and the new earth and the various ways that people have understood that. Probably as we go through it, there are going to be a couple of keys to interpreting, to understanding what the intent is behind this book. One of the keys is understanding the symbols. There's a language to Revelation. There's a, a code, if you will, to apocalyptic literature. And we'll begin in this lesson to begin talking about some of the codes that you'll see through the whole book. That's going to really open this up so that the meaning is, is not so mysterious to us. The other key to understanding this and how people have, for 2,000 years, how have Christians approached this and tried to understand it? Maybe the easiest way to understand the four 
major approaches people have taken is they've tried to, un to answer this question. Of these events that John is revealing to us from Jesus, when are they going to happen? Well, it's not obvious from the text when they're going to happen, but depending on, as you read it, your view of when are these things intended to happen, it influences how you look at the, the book itself. And there are four major views, and we'll classify them by how do they answer that question. When will these visions come to pass? The first view is called preterist, and that is basically the view that most of the book of Revelation, most of these visions, actually came to pass in events that happened shortly after the writing. Some would say the fall of Jerusalem, some would say the fall of Rome, but in general, in that time period of early history near when this book was written. Some of the ending parts may be in the future, but by and large, Preterist says most of these events happened in the past, shortly after it was written. The next view is called the historicist, or a historical view. It says all these visions that you see through this book are actually kind of a secret map of all of history. It's kind of a, a secret road map between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so the age in which we now live and the past 2,000 years and however much time before Christ returns, that this book is sort of a coded reference of things that will happen throughout history. Some of these visions have happened, and I'll point that out as we go through, it, that these folks look at it in that way, and some of them are yet to happen. Third view, it's called the futurist. You can kind of begin to see this makes a little sense. Futurists say most of these things, the vast proportion, have not yet happened. Most of the book of Revelation is events that are predicted that are going to come true in the future. Some people think in the very near future, others think maybe a little farther, but that it's a road map of that little bit of time right before the second coming, right before the end of time. Most people, at least in the United States that you know, have come to take a futurist view that most of the book of Revelation is yet to happen. One other view that answers the question, when will these things happen? And it'll say, not important. Wrong question. That the things that they're talking about in the book of Revelation have happened and will happen. In other words, the visions in Revelation are describing real events, but they're recurring themes and ideas. They're recurring events through time. They're more symbolic rather than specifically about a certain king or a certain war or a certain time period of history. Is that helpful? Those are the four approaches, and they're basically answering the question, when are these things going to happen, or when did they happen? And so as we move through it, I'll try to give you a view of that from each of those different perspectives. As we dive into the text, chapter 1 through 3 of the book of Revelation, the book opens as John relating to us. He said, I was on the island of Patmos, and this is an island just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey was in Roman times, it was governed by the Roman Empire, and it was called the province of Asia, or Asia Minor. It's just modern-day Turkey in the area around that. He was imprisoned on the island of Patmos because of the word of God. In other words, he was imprisoned because of what he believed. He said, and on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day of worship for Christians, I was in the spirit, 
In other words, I had a vision. You know, this isn't something that somebody walked up to me, but I had a vision, and I heard a voice behind me, loud, like a trumpet, and it said, I want you to write on a scroll what you see, and I want you to send it to the seven churches. These are seven churches that in that day were in Turkey, and I'll show them to you in just a minute. And he lists them off. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There were more than seven churches there, but he said, I want you to write what you see to these seven churches. And as a matter of fact, everything that you read in this book are things that were revealed to John that he is faithfully saying, I'm writing this down and I'm sending it to the seven churches. So this whole letter of Revelation was a, a revelation that was written down and sent to each of the seven churches. And each church probably Xeroxed it, probably posted it on their website, and everybody could read it. But that's what this is, okay? Then he begins to describe this vision. He heard a voice. He turned around. Our account goes on in verse 12 of chapter 1 to see who was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw, and now we begin, the visions, these symbols, and we'll decode this. I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone who looked like a son of man. In other words, looked like a human being dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. So he begins to see the vision. Get used to this. Most of the book is like this. But let's decode this. The text in this case gives us some help because it decodes it itself down in verse 20 of chapter 1 by basically saying this person walking among the lampstands is Jesus who is revealing this to John and he explains in verse 20, he says, Now the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands that I'm walking among, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, angels or messengers, and the lampstands are the seven churches. And so he said, what you are seeing in this vision is that Christ is walking amongst, he is inhabiting his churches, and he holds in his hand the messengers, either the angels or the messengers to the seven churches. In other words, Christ is intimately connected with his people, and he has something to say to them. Now, one thing that's not explained that I want to begin to explain is the symbology of the numbers. We're going to see a lot of interesting numbers in the book of Revelation. Why seven churches? Good question, because again, there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. These weren't even necessarily the biggest or most important of the churches. They're all important, but they're not necessarily the most important. Why seven? Seven turns out to be a very an important number, and not just in the book of Revelation, but as a symbol throughout Scripture, but certainly in apocalyptic literature. So here's how we get to that. The number four, and I'm going to show you this over and over again, by the way, throughout this book. The number four is representative of earthly or created things, the created order. If you think about uh, ancients thought of the four winds, they thought of the four things that make up everything, earth, wind, fire, and water, uh, the four compass directions. In other words, there's always been this sense 
of, of a kind of a four-square layout to creation. This number four comes to symbolize the created order. The number three, you're going to see recurringly, symbolizes divine. In other words, the heavenly realm, or God, or the divine order, apart from the created order. And so you see the trinity. This number comes to mean divine. You'll see over and over in the scriptures, Abraham has three visitors, and that's God visiting him. You'll see Jesus in the grave for three days. And in other words, three is a very symbol of something divine, something supernatural. Not the natural order, but something beyond the natural order. So four, the natural order, plus three, the heavenly or divine order, and you put those two together, and the number seven then is going to mean completeness. It's going to mean wholeness. It's going to mean everything, the created world and the divine world, natural, supernatural. So the, words, the number seven is going to mean completion. Think about the creation of the world in Genesis 1. God created the earth in seven days. He set up this cycle of seven. And what does seven mean? It's, it's completeness. He finished everything. There's a wholeness to the number seven. Well, how does that symbol then apply to this? Well, Jesus told us what the lampstands and the lights are, but why seven churches? The idea is, is that seven means these churches are representative of all the people of faith, all the churches. So why seven? If it had been 427, well, I'd have no particular significance to that number. But the number seven is just too much to be a coincidence. These seven churches are in some way representative of all believers, certainly at the time, maybe through all time. And so what Jesus is going to say to these seven churches is something that's applicable to all churches in all times. Does that make sense? That's not hard at all, is it? This book's going to be easy to figure out. So that's what's happening in that first vision. Let me introduce you to the churches, because now Jesus begins to narrate. He says, I want you to write to this church, this church, this church, this church. And in a sense, what is being written is written to every church. But these seven churches, let me give you the setting. Here's a good little map that I reproduced on your handout for you. You can see the island of Patmos, and I believe in green are these seven churches. These seven churches are existing at a time of great persecution, and particularly in this part of the Roman Empire. There was this thing we talked about in our last lesson called emperor worship, the emperor cult, and the Roman Empire demanded that their citizens, to be good citizens, would worship the emperor, amongst many other gods, but that the emperor was divine. This was very embedded in their culture, and I'll show you as we get into some of the letters how embedded this was. Well, Christians wouldn't do that, or at least... Christians who followed Christ wouldn't do it. You'll see some things Jesus has to say to them. And Jesus predicted this. From John 16, he said, I've told you, Jesus is telling his disciples these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You're going to see that theme played out very much. Now that they're in this time of trouble that he has predicted, you'll see this theme played out of Jesus reassuring the churches and talking to them about how to deal with this persecution. So that's what's happening with the churches. It turns out their trials and persecutions come about in two ways. One is going to be external, from Jews or Romans persecuting them. Another, you'll notice as we go through these letters, are internal, false teachers, people who are trying to 
compromise with the culture or the world, people who are out for their own benefit, very divisive people. So you're going to see two kinds of troubles that they have, and, and Jesus is going to spell that out as they move through. Well, let's move to our first church, and he takes them literally in the order that they were on the road that you would travel. If you were going to go visit these seven churches, this is where the Greyhound bus went, and it went in this order. And so they're kind of listed in a pretty logical order. This is Jesus dictating letters, commands, to these churches. And I would just point out to you, these are probably the least studied words of Jesus in the Bible. You think, well, I'd like to know what Jesus taught. I'll go to the Gospels. Great idea. You'll see a lot of red letters in the Gospel. In other words, things that Jesus himself actually said. You're actually going to see a whole lot of red letters in the book of Revelation. And these are commands and specific messages to the churches then and now that Jesus taught. Now, how do the different views understand these letters? Before I jump into the first one, I'm going to give you the framework. Historicists are going to understand this in a very logical way. Remember, they think that everything in the book of Revelation is a roadmap to all of history. They think that these seven, they understand these seven letters and these seven churches to be different periods of time in the history of the church. And what he says to each church in order throughout time describes the church in that time period all the way up to the present day. Some futurists understand it in that way too. And as we go through, I'll tell you how they see what era each of these churches represent in history. They're the historicist view. Preterists, symbolic, and some futurists understand this as this is simply a letter to seven real churches that existed at that time. But the fact that there are seven means that there are lessons in here written to these churches that would apply to all of us through all time. In other words, there are lessons that are applicable, but they're really just written to those seven churches. So the two points of view will see it a little differently. Well, let's jump into the first one, which is a letter written to Ephesus. And here's an excerpt, and we'll talk a little bit about that letter. He says, Jesus says to them, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, there's a whole formula. I haven't quoted the whole letter, and I urge you to read it because you'll see a very nice little literary structure here some things that he says at the beginning and end of each letter. I've tried to pull the heart out so we can talk about the specific situation of each city. Ephesus is an interesting city, big city at the time. It's traditionally the city where the Apostle John lived. Near the end of his life, he was ministering in Ephesus in that church. He was arrested there for what he was teaching and sent to the island of Patmos about 60 miles away and that when he was released from the island of Patmos, he went back to Ephesus, and that's where he died. So according to tradition, it's not in your Bible, but that's early church tradition, this is where the Apostle John lived. This church in Ephesus was started at about 52 AD when Paul went there, and he based for three years in Ephesus and basically started churches all over this entire region, this whole area of Turkey in that three-year period when he was planting churches and spreading the gospel, and it became wildly successful. There are tons of churches in this area, a very strong uh, number of Christians, so much so that it, it really alarmed the Romans 
and they began to realize what a threat the Christians were. Uh, this city is famous for two things, and that is, I mean, many things. It's a great commercial center, probably between 250,000 and 500,000 people. And now that doesn't sound like a lot to you and me. That is a huge city at that time. That is a major commercial center. They're right on, uh, close to the bay. They're a great trading center. The, go the Roman governor of the province lived here. It wasn't the capital, but the governor lived in this city. Big, beautiful city, commercial center. There was a huge emperor cult there. They had built temples to the emperor, you know, currying favor with Rome, but also there was a lot of emperor worship. But from ancient times, they had built a temple there to many Greek gods, but the goddess Artemis, that'd be the Roman goddess Diana, but the goddess Artemis, this temple that they built, and there's a little, uh, that's an actual replica, small replica, that's in Turkey today. That was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, it was a massive temple. It occupied the size of about two football fields. I mean, it's a big, big building. Those columns that you see were 55 feet high. There were 100 of those columns. I mean, people flocked there to worship Artemis, and it was just something this city was known for, one of the wonders of the world. And so this is a very pagan place, and there's very robust worship of all the Greek gods, but also of the emperor here in Ephesus. You may remember that when Paul was preaching there, so many people became Christians. You'll see this in the book of Acts. So many people became Christians that all the silversmiths and the people that made souvenirs and trinkets and things said, you know, this guy's killing our business. We got to get rid of him. So they dragged the Christians into the amphitheater, which still exists, by the way, beautiful uh, ruins of an ancient theater, held about 25,000 people, packed it with people who said, find Paul and kill him. So the Christians were such a force, so many people had become Christians, they felt like they were affecting the civic good. They just wouldn't worship the emperor, they wouldn't worship Artemis. And so you see in the book of Acts how much turmoil came about because of Christians. Well, now fast forward from the time of Paul, about 55 AD when that happened, now 40 years ahead. 95 AD, and John is dictating this letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. So this is a huge church. It's been a thriving church, a church that's been persecuted for a long time, but we're now into the second generation of Christians there. And he says, you know, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name, but I have this against you. He said, you've forsaken your first love. And so he offers them praise and correction. Well, what does that mean, you've forsaken your first love? Well, two possibilities, and most people think both are true. One is, you've, you've kept hold of the truth, despite the false teachers and despite all the pagans that are telling you Artemis is the great goddess or you need to worship the emperor. You've held on to the truth, but you've lost your love maybe for Christ or maybe for each other, maybe lost your evangelistic zeal. And Jesus is saying, it's good that you've held on to the truth. In fact, later to some of the churches that have not, he's absolutely brutal with churches who have compromised the truth. But here's a church that hasn't compromised the truth, and he says to them, but I do have this against you. You need to rekindle your love. So it's truth and love. In this case, there's a really 
I just need to take a pause and, and hit the pause button, and I really want to bring to home something that's very current today. The church today in America is under great attack by people who worship other gods. They don't have a temple called Artemis, and there's not a worship of the emperor, at least not yet. But there are gods in our culture. Sometimes we call it political correctness. Sometimes we call it tolerance. Sometimes we call it whatever you want to call it. But there are forces that are very much hostile to what Christians believe, exactly like what was happening in Ephesus. Now, the interesting thing I'd like to point out that happens in this situation, you see it in America, it's a very hostile culture in America, very much hostile against Christians, and sometimes Christians are very angry at the culture. The tendency when truth or truth is attacked is to become angry. Now, I expect people who pervert the truth of the gospel or people who reject the truth of the gospel to be very angry, and you see that. You see Christians uh, now currently having their speech curtailed. You see Christians being vilified for what they believe. You see Christians being uh, penalized economically. You're going to see that over and over again. That was exactly what was happening in this time. But you're beginning to see Christians vilified. You see a lot of hatred toward Christians by people who pervert the truth or reject the truth of the gospel. That's expected. What you sometimes see, and our reaction is, we're sometimes really mad at those people who pervert the truth or reject it. That's where I think this letter speaks to us. It does not speak to us and say, you should be okay with a perversion or a rejection of the truth. He doesn't. He says, you have persevered and endured many hardships to hold on to the truth, and you have not grown weary, and I commend you for that. He says, but they're going to get angry at you, but you still need to love them. Now, let me caution you. What does he mean by love them? Does he mean to say, hey, I agree with you? No, not at all. But instead of reacting at anger is to realize, as Jesus taught us, those people are lost. Those who pervert or reject the truth of the gospel, we're to look at them as lost. Will truth prevail? Undoubtedly. We'll get into that starting next week, and it prevails in a pretty interesting way. Right? God will judge the world. But we are called to hold to the truth, but not to react in the anger that is going to be directed at us. And you're going to see that over and over in the book of Revelation, that Christians are being intensely hated and persecuted. They're going to hold on to the truth, but they're not going to pick up their guns or swords and they're not going to hate back. And this is what I think Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, and I think it's really relevant to us today. I understand how easy it is for us to become angry in return. He says, hold the truth, but try to do it with grace, with love. Does that make sense? This is, to me, one of the most relevant messages, one of many, but one of the most relevant messages. You see, Jesus played out with Pontius Pilate, by the way. I don't know if you've thought about this, but from a symbolic point of view, this idea has played itself out over and over in history and is playing itself out in your life today. But remember Pontius Pilate and Jesus. Jesus is beaten. He's tied up. Pontius Pilate, he's in power. He doesn't believe the truth of the gospel. And Jesus says to him, whoever's on the side of truth is with me. And Pontius Pilate says, what's truth? In other words, Pontius Pilate rejects the truth of the gospel. And who's doing the violence to whom? 
Pontius Pilate and the Roman Empire are inflicting violence on the Christians. And how is Jesus reacting? He says, whether you think it's true or not, it is true, and you cannot change that, and that will become apparent. But he doesn't hate back, does he? And I think that's the essence of this message, and I think it's very timely for us. Hold the truth with grace and with some love. Next letter. Moves on to the church in Smyrna. This is a fascinating uh, church. I want to tell you some really interesting things that happened here. First of all, on Ephesus, when do the historicists think that happened? They think that was the first century church. They would say that from their method of understanding it, Ephesus was a real church, but it's symbolic of the church from the time of the resurrection, let's say 33 AD to 100 AD. It's a church that endured persecution, but as the generation moved on, needed to remember its love. The second letter to Smyrna, historicists would say, this is a church that was heavily persecuted. You're going to see great persecution in Smyrna, and I'm going to read you an interesting account from this time period, a historical account of something that happened there that will give you a feel for the persecution. Most people would say that's written to this church, Smyrna, and it most certainly has has implications for us, but the historicists and some of the futurists say, but it's also forecasting to you what happened between 100 AD and 313 AD. 313 AD is important because the Emperor Constantine in the Roman Empire says, you know what, enough of this persecution, Christianity is okay. But for that 213 years, the persecution was unbelievable how many Christians were killed for being Christians. And so this, was, this is representative, according to the historicists, of that era of history. Well, the church in Smyrna is, by the way, the only one, that's the only city that still exists today. It's Izmir, Turkey. The others are ruins near cities, but they're not inhabited. This city is still inhabited. Huge persecution, both by the Jews as well as by the Romans, and a lot of economic persecution. In those days, everything was run by guilds. Think kind of like unions, but way more so. I mean, the guilds were very tight-knit. You, you grew up, you became an apprentice, you got into the guild, you were part of a network. The guilds had guild halls. Uh, they had their own worship services. That part of their being a you know, part of being an electrician at that time was being in the electrician guild, and it meant you worshiped the god of the electrician guild. And when you went to the to the, to the uh, banquet, you would sacrifice to those gods. Big problem for the Christians. They said, no, we won't. They said, you're out of the guild. Guess what? No guild, no business. Christians suffered huge economic persecution. Well, Jesus writes to this church, and he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Why are they poor? Because they're being economically, they can't keep jobs, because they don't think they're good citizens. Yet you are rich. In God's economy, you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. In other words, the Jews were persecuting them, and he says they think they're serving God. They're really serving Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to whisk you out of there and you won't suffer. He just says, you're going to suffer, but don't be afraid. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. So he's basically addressing the fact that you are indeed suffering in various ways, both physically, economically, but persevere, and you will have eternal life. 
interesting incident happened in this very city. This letter's written to them about 95 AD. I'm going to read you from a document that was written about 60 years later. So not that much later in this very city. It was written in 60 years later by an eyewitness who's describing the event. This church in Smyrna in about 155 AD. So not long after what's happening here. The persecution is intense. And it goes in to describe about how many Christians are being killed, how many Christians are just having their, all their property forfeit. Imagine going home today and being told that because you won't worship the emperor, you don't live here anymore. Your house has been confiscated and you no longer have a job. Good luck. And don't bother applying for unemployment. And that's literally what was happening. But they grabbed the bishop, who would be, think of it as sort of the senior pastor of the biggest church in town. I mean, that's maybe the easiest way. But there was a guy named Polycarp. He was 86 years old. He was the spiritual leader of the churches. There were many buildings or many places in that town, but the church in Smyrna. And so they grabbed him because he'd been accused of being a Christian, and he was, and they brought him into the theater, the amphitheater, think, uh, brought him into the football stadium. And the Roman proconsul, as they did with Christians, brought him up and began to ask him whether he was a Christian. And I'm just going to pick up the account. So this document, I mean, this book isn't from 160 AD, but this, what's written in here is, is from just uh, about 155 AD. It says, as Polycarp entered the stadium, all the citizens in there began to, to jeer and revile him that they'd heard he'd been arrested. And the proconsul asked him if he was indeed Polycarp, and he confessed that he was, asked him if he was a Christian, and he confessed that he was. So the proconsul says, you understand, this is going to lead to death. He said, so listen, you're an old man, I'm going to make this easy for you, I want you to just say that you're no longer a Christian. Polycarp says, no, I can't do that. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll make it easy for you. Why don't you just swear by the genius of Caesar? In other words, just swear that Caesar's divine. He says, I want you to repent. Swear that, Jesus, that Caesar is divine. That would be the emperor at the time. That he's divine. I want you to repent. That's interesting, isn't it? You think of that as a Christian word. It's not a Christian word. It's a regular word. It's, I want you to change your mind, and I want you to say, away with those atheists, those Christians who won't worship the gods. In other words, just say you repent, and you'll be fine. We won't kill you. And so he says, no, I won't do that. But then the proconsul persisted. He said, look, swear the oath, and I will release you. Just revile Christ, and I'll let you go. Otherwise, I'm going to kill you. And Polycarp says this. He says, for 86 years, I have been Christ's servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so the proconsul turns to the people and says, he's a Christian, and he won't... Uh, repent. And he says to Polycarp, are you sure? Because I have wild beasts. I'm going to put you in the stadium. We're going to let them loose. And everybody here is going to enjoy you being torn to pieces by wild beasts. And that's very common. That's it. They made the persecution of Christians into sport. This is happening in Smyrna in 155. And Polycarp says, go ahead and let them loose. I'm not going to change my mind. He said, fine, if you're not afraid of them, I'm going to burn you at the stake. It's excruciating. It's slow. We're going to burn you at the stake. He said, you know, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a while, and it'll kill me. He says, but you know what? That is better than the fires of hell. 
And so all the people begin to realize this, and they begin to chant, burn him, burn him, burn him. And so they run out, and they get a bunch of wood. It says, led by the Jews, as was their custom. And so they all came, and they brought it in, and they made a big bonfire. They tied him to a stake, and they burned him to death. And so they let him pray. And so at the end, after he said amen, they lit the fire, and they began to burn it. And so this is, this is literally happening in, that, in this time frame, in this era. That's what's being talked about when you talk about this Smyrna. And one of the interesting things that are applicable to us, because if you stop and think about it, you notice how even the proconsul was trying to make it easy for him to save his life. I mean, okay, maybe you don't just say, I don't believe in Christ. Maybe you just say, Caesar's also divine. You notice the attempts to get the compromise to happen? And so this church is constantly being challenged to compromise. And you know what? That's exactly our situation today as well. I mean, whether you, historicists, you think it was written to them, or if you think, like many, that it's written to Smyrna and it's very applicable today. Our culture very much wants to say, if you're a Christian, you're going to get punished one way or another. Maybe not burn you at the stake yet, but you're going to get punished for that in some way or another. So why don't you just go along? Why don't you compromise? And you're going to realize one of the great challenges of the church at that time was, well, what if we went to the guild and we don't really believe in the God, but what if we kind of said we did? Then we can keep our job. Our kids won't be hungry. Can you feel the tension that they had to have felt? That's what's really happening. And Jesus comes to them and he says, I know you're going to feel that, and here's the deal. He says, I want you to trust me because if you overcome, if you persevere, I will give you the crown of life. And that's the situation that these Christians found themselves in. That's what's happening in Smyrna. And that's Jesus writing and commanding them. And I would argue, hopefully you're starting to see a lot of similarity. This has been true at various times in history, and it's really true today as well. Well, the third church is called Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital, was the capital of the Roman province of uh, Asia, of Turkey at that time. The historicists think this church, by the way, is going to get accused of moral and doctrinal compromise. In other words, I told you that in Smyrna, you're wrestling with, well, am I going to lose my job? Am I potentially going to get killed? Or am I going to just sort of say I believe in the gods and maybe make a sacrifice? And so what's happening in Pergamum is a lot of people are compromising. They're compromising their morals. They're compromising their, their truth. And so Jesus speaks to them. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And that's interesting. He's talking about the Roman government there. In fact, that uh, picture is from the Berlin Museum, and they basically moved a portion, just a portion of the Temple of Zeus, massive Temple of Zeus in Pergamum. And they would have sacrifices burning. They would kill these bulls, and then they'd burn them on the altar 24 hours a day. They had shifts of priests to make sure that there was always smoke rising up from a sacrifice to keep the king of the gods, Zeus, happy. Massive, unbelievably beautiful temple. There's a piece of it there that you see, and you get a, a, a sense of the scope of this thing. That's what's happening there. The historicists say this time of compromise happened between 313, when the Roman Empire said, now, this is happening in 95 AD, but the historicists say these events are symbolic and are telling you what happened in the history of the church from 313 
to around 600, five or 600, depending on when you think the papacy began, when you think the Catholic Church began. So this is a time when the Romans said it's okay to be a Christian, and you begin to see the rise of the Catholic Church. It was a time in history that they felt like that the church compromised its beliefs and it compromised its morals with the pressure from, uh, from the culture. Others think it's simply an, a record of that church giving in to compromise or some people and the temptation that we have to just kind of compromise with our culture. He says, look, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Satan still has a throne today. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. So he's commending some of the people there that are holding to the truth of that. And so one of the things that I think you know, comes out of this for us today is you begin to see this pattern of the churches, the Christians being pressed to compromise is to what extent are we willing to obey civil authority? We're called to be good citizens in Romans chapter 13, but clearly you see that there comes a point where Jesus says you cannot compromise on the morals, you cannot compromise on the truth, and that's a battle that they were facing in Pergamum, and it's a battle that we face today as well. Will we compromise, and if so, how much? The next church, Thyatira, is very interesting to me. This is a church, again, existed at that time and is undergoing great pressure to compromise their doctrine. This is pressure from inside the church. Historicists say, oh, this is symbolic of a time period of the Catholic Church, from about 500 when technically the first pope, uh, you know, you have the first pope or what would become a pope, to about 1500 in the time of the Reformation. For that thousand years, the Catholic Church was supreme in the, in the Christian world in a variety of ways. And they understand that, that uh, the people, historicists, by the way, Martin Luther was a historicist, and uh, many of the reformers were, because they saw the Catholic Church as really that this church in Thyatira was describing the Catholic Church. You have compromised the truth of the gospel. And they saw themselves as reintroducing the truth of the gospel. They were protesting the perversion they thought of the gospel inside the church. And that's what's happening here. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and now you're doing even more than you did at first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. There's probably not a woman in that church named Jezebel, but does that ring a bell in history? Jezebel was a queen of one of the kings of Israel. She was not an Israelite. She came and she brought all of her foreign gods with her and she corrupted her husband, kind of a weak-willed guy, and she led Israel astray. Remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? That's Jezebel's influence. So to call her Jezebel as a symbol, he's saying what's happening here is you have teachers who are telling you it's okay to worship these other gods. That's exactly what Jezebel did. He, Jezebel didn't come to the Israelites and say, oh, you shouldn't worship your God. She said, you should worship all these other gods too. And sometimes in the church today, you'll see people say, look, it's not that God's not God, but it's okay to go compromise with the culture. That's what's happening there. Historicists say that's a roadmap of what happened in history. Others, futurists, preterists, symbolic view say, Actually, I don't know that that's necessarily describing the past. It's probably describing 
that church, and it's probably also describing modern churches as well. He said, you have tolerated that teaching. By her teaching, she misleads Christians into sexual immorality and eating a food sacrificed to idol. In other words, you're corrupting the morals, the truth, things Jesus said, do this, but don't do this. And also, eating food sacrificed to idols means you're willing to worship other gods. So it's sexual immorality and spiritual immorality as well. One of the great challenges for our time is Jesus says you tolerate that, that compromise. In our culture, what's the great virtue? Tolerance. Tolerate everybody, everything. What is true for you is true for you, and don't bother telling me that I'm wrong, unless I'm a Christian, and then it's okay to tell me I'm wrong. But you see that our culture says tolerance is the great virtue, and Jesus says tolerance of things that aren't true is not a virtue. In fact, it's something that you cannot do, and that's what that church in Thyatira is, uh, is condemned for. Sardis, next on the road, has a church that has something a little bit different happening. Sardis is called the counterfeit church. Sardis is an interesting city. I can tell you a story about this city. This city is virtually impregnable. It is up on a hill. You couldn't conquer this city no matter how many troops you had. And in ancient times, about 549 B.C., so this is way before the time of this writing, way before the time of Christ, there was a king there in a kingdom. His name was Croesus, and he was rich as all get out. In fact, he had so much gold, he is probably what's behind the legend of King Midas. Remember Midas, everything he touched turns to gold. That's probably based on this guy. He is rich as all get out. He thinks he is hot stuff, so he goes to attack the Persian Empire, right? Think 300, you know, the movie, right? Xerxes. Okay. He goes to attack them. Bad move. They totally stomp his army. Runs back to Sardis, gets in his citadel. They bring a big army. He stands up there and laughs like, huh, no way you're getting in here. And sure enough, there's no way they can get in there. But they're so complacent. I mean, this, is, this is crazy. They don't even post a guard. And so there's no guards. So in the middle of the night, the Persians just throw a rope up there and one by one they climb up. I mean, if you had a guard, you could stop that easily, but they didn't. And so their city gets conquered because they're just not paying attention. Well, it's interesting, as you, as you see this, here's what Jesus says to them. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. In other words, everybody thinks you're a great church, but you're actually dead. You better strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember what you've received and heard and obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, and that's an interesting little tie-in to Sardis, like they were all asleep and that's how they got conquered. He said, you guys are asleep at the wheel in this church. If you don't wake up, I will come and I, and I will come to visit you. But you have a few people, there's still a few in your church that hold to the truth, who have not soiled their clothes. In other words, their clothes are not dirty. They'll walk with me dressed in white because they've been faithful. As long as we're here, let me give you one more symbol. You're going to see this over and over. Clothes in apocalyptic literature, and particularly in Revelation, are a symbol of your spiritual condition. Dirty clothes, not very spiritually good. White clothes, white robes, righteous, faithful, obedient. What would you guess naked would be? Not good at all, okay? 
And you're going to see that in just a second. But before I turn our attention to the last couple, which are, which are really interesting, let me stop and see if there are any questions. I know we've been through a lot of churches here, but it's really interesting to see what Jesus has to say to each. And I hope you're getting the sense that, man, this book has a lot to say to us today. Question? Well, it's not exactly about the churches, but in the beginning, mm -hmm. we talked about the man, and you were just talking about the symbolism of clothes. So I had a question about the importance of his clothes and his sword-like tongue. Good question. In the beginning, when John turns around and he sees Jesus, and he sees him walking, he's described as having radiant features. He's described as having hair like wool. He's so much light and brightness coming off him. Very white robe. So you see kind of the, the picture there is the ultimate in righteousness. I mean, there's just no unrighteousness. There's no blemish. There's no dirt. In other words, this is, whoa, you know, if this is incredibly righteous. This is Jesus. The double-edged sword coming out of his mouth is a reference to what you see in the New Testament. You uh, read that the word of God in Ephesians, and the, remember the armor of God? What's the word of God? Sword. You're going to see the word of God described in the letter of Peter. Is it's, it's like a double-edged sword that just cuts. The truth cuts between right and wrong. And so Jesus, you'll see again this idea of a sword coming out of his mouth. Is there a literal sword coming out of his mouth? Is he a sword swallower? No, this is not the carnival. What he's talking about is this is a symbol. What he sees is this is the truth. This is the gospel that comes out of his mouth. What is Jesus' weapon? What is the weapon of the church? What is the sword? How are we going to attack? I mean, when the Romans come and start to kill people, what are you going to attack with? A sword. And what is your sword? The truth. It is the words of the gospel, the truth that comes out of our mouth. So that's what the sword is symbolic of. Very good question. So the clothes, righteousness or not, and the sword is the truth. Move on to Philadelphia. This is the one church that has nothing negative said about it. Historicists, guess when historicists think this is? This is the Great Awakening from 1793 to the present. In other words, 1793, you see John Wesley and Whitfield and those guys. There's kind of a great awakening, a reform movement, a just unbelievable evangelism in Europe and America. And so historicists would say this church is representing that era of history. Others would say, no, this is representing Philadelphia, and it's probably applicable to us as well. But it's not necessarily a historical view of the church. Well, this church, he says this, I know your deeds and I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. The idea of an open door is the idea of an opportunity for the truth. Paul speaks of that earlier in the book of Acts. He said, listen, a door has been opened for me, and I'm not going to be able to come to you yet because I have to go preach the word here. There's a huge opportunity to reach people for Christ. The idea of an open door is the idea of a receptivity to the truth. He says, I've given you an opportunity in this city to reach people. In other words, go preach. There are people here who, who are going to respond to this. He says that nobody can shut that door. This opportunity is there. He said, I know you don't have much strength. In other words, you're persecuted too. And yet you've kept my word. You've held on to the truth and you have not denied my name, no matter what they've accused you of. And since you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world. Now, some futurists, and I'm going to get into this in our next lesson, think that there's going to be this thing called the rapture. And some believe that this is Jesus saying, hey, you guys are so good, I'll rapture you out of here before the trouble. 
Don't tell the church in Smyrna, because I'm not rapturing them. But we'll talk about that in our next lesson. But some would see the idea of a rapture here, and you're going to find out next time how, how there's not very many mention of that idea in the Scriptures. But Philadelphia has nothing but uh, praise. The last church, Laodicea. This is a famous church because you're going to recognize this phrase. This, historicists say this is a modern-day church, and this is the liberal church in modern times because of something that he says. This is the remains of a Roman aqueduct, by the way, at Laodicea. A Roman aqueduct is a long, long, long pipeline, if you want to think about it that way, that carried water from one place to another. Laodicea happened to be between two different cities, one that had hot springs and the other that had just good, cool, fresh water. They piped their water in uh, from a lake that was also used for fishing and boating and that kind of stuff, and their water wasn't very good. By the time their water got to them, it was sort of, you know, kind of like Lake Hefner when they turn it over. It's like, that does not look good. That, that was just historically true. Their water wasn't very good. And watch what Jesus said. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth, and I don't need anything. And by the way, this is a very rich city. This city was destroyed by an uh, earthquake in about 60, 61 AD. They didn't even need government help to rebuild. They had enough money in the bank to rebuild the place. I mean, this is a very affluent city. He said, you say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth, and I don't need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What's he saying? He says, you don't just have dirty clothes. You got no clothes. In other words, this is the materialistic church. This is a church that is so reliant on its affluence and materialism that Jesus says, you think you're rich. Man, by my calculations, you are bankrupt. If, you, if I had to rate your righteousness, your obedience, your faithfulness in clothes, you don't even have any. And so that's what he's saying to them. He says, your deeds, neither hot or cold, I wish you were one or the other. What does that mean? Because there's an interesting lesson there for us. Some people think that uh, the idea is that the ancients thought that hot water was good for you, cold water was good for you. Lukewarm water, it's just not very good for you. So some think, well, that probably means that their witness wasn't very effective, wasn't good for you. More people, though, understand this in a, in a pretty reasonable way. Hot means I'm spiritually on fire. Cold means I'm not. I reject the truth. He said, you guys are kind of in the middle. You want to follow Christ, you think you're following Christ, but you're actually not. You're also following the world. In other words, you're so affluent and materialistic that you say you follow Christ, but you actually follow the world. Remember what Jesus said? He said, look, every, no one can serve two masters. You know, you're going to hate the one and follow the other or vice versa. He said, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and any other God. But he said, you cannot serve God and money. That's exactly what's happening to this church. He said, you think you're rich. You're actually spiritually bankrupt. And so you get this idea. He said, you know, so I actually wish you were cold. Why would he say that? Why would I wish you perverted the truth? You know what? It's actually easier to take the gospel to somebody who rejects the truth, who is hostile toward you, than it is to somebody who says, oh, don't need it. I'm a Christ follower. No, you're not. Oh, yeah, I am. You see what he's saying? He says, if you were on fire, that's good. If you were cold, there's an opportunity. He said, you think that you're righteous, and you're not. 
And that's worse than either one of the other two. He said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That may not mean I'm sending you to hell, but it's not good, right? That, there's also an interesting lesson there for us as well, is how do we resist the corrosive effects of materialism and affluence? It's something that tugs us to compromise, doesn't it? You see in these seven churches so much relevance to today. They're literally physically struggling with people wanting to kill them, take their property. We are struggling with people who, at the moment, are not trying to kill us, but they're very much trying to punish us for what we believe. Very, very significant elements of our culture that are very hostile toward us. They're struggling with people inside the church going, wow, can't we compromise? We struggle all the time with holding the truth or compromising it. And sometimes we hold the truth so tightly that we forget to love the people who are cold, that even the hostile people, there's hope for them. Hold the truth, but be compassionate to them. We struggle with those exact same things that are happening in these seven churches. So I hope as you see this, you're motivated to read it, a little more than the excerpts I've given you, but to see that this is a, a real story of real churches but that fact that there are seven of them is not a coincidence. There's something representative about these churches for all churches, for us today as well. Well, again, I'll come all the way back around to what Jesus said. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. You will have tribulation. The ESV translates that word tribulation instead of trouble. And that's actually the Greek word for tribulation is going to be used all through this. He said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And that introduces our next session. Because when we open chapter 4 next time, he's through speaking to the churches about their specific situation. And he's now saying, let me tell you about some unbelievably wild visions that I have had. And traditionally, we understand chapter 4 beginning the great tribulation, the great era of trials. When did it happen? Preterist? Back then? historicist throughout the church age, futurist, it's coming, or symbolic, it's happening now and it's happened many times before. Whatever it is, and whatever your view, next time I'm going to tell you what's happening. But if you are a particular brand of futurist, you believe in this thing called a rapture. And if you're lucky enough to be what's called a pre-tribulation futurist, you believe in a rapture before the bad stuff happens. If that's the case, you'll be gone by next week because we're going to begin the tribulation. <laughs> I'll see you guys next week.